Simple Beep, episode 81, The Next Transition. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And as we're recording this, it is the month of May, and that means that in the Mac community right now, people are gearing up for WWDC next month in June. And that means that the rumor and leak frenzy is at its highest pitch and all of the wish casting is going on. What are we going to get at uh, Apple Christmas next month? And one of the things that people are talking about a ton right now is that macOS is going into a really exciting and unknown new period with Marzipan, the sneak peek, iOS coming to the desktop. Nobody knows what it's going to be like unless you look to the past and then you can realize that maybe we've done this once before. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about Apple's biggest previous Mac OS transition on this episode. But before we do, we've got a couple items of follow-up. Yes, this first item goes back to our episode 22 about widgets, but it comes from one of the aforementioned leaks about what we have to look forward to in the next major version of macOS. Steve Troughton-Smith, who will also be featured heavily later in this episode, reports that Dashboard will be going away entirely in the next macOS release. Which most people said, wait, it's still there? And uh, Ed, I know that when we got this news, you went to see uh, if the dashboard widget section of apple.com is still up. And yes, that was also available, though kind of incomplete. Right. And we said that it should be archived in some way, and maybe we should set about doing that. And it's in kind of a weird state because the page is still live on Apple's site. And so it has this by App Store standards, incredibly small directory of dashboard widgets, I think right around a thousand of them, categorized and alphabetized, and there's little uh, descriptions of each one and an icon or a small picture. And there are download links, and many of those download links go to nowhere, because I think they could go off to a third-party site where these files were actually hosted. And it turns out that The Internet Archive, if you go in the Wayback Machine to this page, the archived versions, which are exactly the same because it has not changed in years, have some of the download links better preserved than the actual live site. Either way, it seems like this little piece of OS X history ought to be saved. One other area of, I don't know if this is follow-up or sort of linking out to other projects, one of them I know we've talked about before, and both of these are documentaries that are at different phases of their life right now. So I think the one that we've mentioned before is the General Magic documentary. This premiered, I think, at the Tribeca Film Festival last year, was the first time that anyone was able to see it. And so it's been out in the world, not really for the public to see for about a year, but it's been known that this project was finished. It's a feature-length documentary on General Magic, which was the sort of pre-Newton separate spinoff company that a bunch of former Apple employees went and created. And then eventually the Newton came along and Palm came along and General Magic did not make a great success in the market but it was out there with some leading technology in the 
portable computing space. And now that they're a year past their festival run, they're doing, they're trying to do a overall premiere and general release and we'll link to their website. Uh, some of these screenings will have already passed by the time that we get this episode posted and the ones that are this week as we record, none of them are close enough for me to actually go and see them. So I'm hoping that it does get a wider release soon. But if one of these is in your area and still coming up, I would suggest going and checking it out. And if anyone on the documentary team is listening, please, please, we are really looking forward to an actual digital release of this. We will give you money to watch it in our in the comfort of our homes. Yes. One other project that you can give your money to right now is a documentary that is in the planning Kickstarter stages, which is called Before Macintosh, the Apple Lisa. And so since the last time we recorded an episode, this Kickstarter project went up. It's live now and has been fully funded. So it is going to go ahead. If you would like to reserve your copy of this full-length documentary feature on another Apple product that wasn't so successful, you can follow the link in the show notes. And I think for something like $25, you'll get your own digital download of it when it's ready. They're saying that it'll be later this year, but you know how Kickstarter goes. But uh, (laughs) I think one of the first Kickstarter projects that I backed was a documentary that actually one of our high school friends was involved in making. And I think I'm going to get my digital download of it Later this year, I backed it in 2014, I believe. <laughs> so hopefully it won't take that long, but you know what you're in for. I think you'll get the uh, the promised content, um, but these things take time. And uh, if you're listening to this episode on the day we release it, there will still be a couple days left to actually be part of the Kickstarter campaign if you want to maybe secure yourself as one of the first people to get it, as opposed to whenever it's generally released. <laughs> Okay, so I think that wraps it up for follow-up, and we're going to move on to our topic for today, which is really a big topic, maybe really two topics in one. And what we're looking at is how macOS X came to be out of the foundations of Next and Next Step. And like we said, this was inspired by a big Twitter thread that Stephen Troughton-Smith went on with some great screenshots comparing actual things in the next step operating system that next computer was working on and then early versions even pre-release versions of Mac OS 10 once that technology came in-house at Apple and when things were messy when things were really nicely designed and have carried over into OS 10 even to this day and so We're going to divide this into two sections. I think Brian is going to take us down. He's going to take us down to how did we get to the point where Apple was so desperate to basically need to purchase someone else's operating system to keep Macs running. And then once we get to that point, I will uh, guide us through what the heck was Next Step and where do we still see it today? And what is that going to look like later this year or maybe even in another 10 or 15 years, which is how long we've had this technology as a part of the Mac to the point that us, a show that is about Apple history, can say that, yes, this is really 
an entire era ago in Apple history and not have to put an asterisk on every time we talk about something that's in macOS 10 as if that were the current version. <laughs> so one other thing that I think uh, we should mention as a resource as we get into this is something that we've talked about on the show previously. I think we even had uh, Stephen Hackett on the show when he released his ebook called Aqua and Bondi which has a little bit more of information on not only it's sort of a parallel story. He talks a little bit about the operating system transition, obviously with Aqua in the title, but also how it matches up with the hardware. And so if you're interested in that bigger picture, definitely, and you don't already own the book, definitely go and check that out. But now let's get into the Copeland era of the Macintosh operating system. And this was Apple realizing They have to start planning for the next major release of the Macintosh operating system. And this was way before Next and Next Step was even in the picture. Where do we start? Well, there's an infamous brainstorming session in 1988. So, you know, a couple years after the Macintosh operating system has been out in the world, you know, and it's not Mac OS, it's System 1, uh, 2, 3, etc. In 1988, it would have been right at the beginning of the System 6 era. I consider it like the last major black and white (laughs) Macintosh operating system. And at this brainstorming session, like so many that we probably have at our workspaces today, uh, the very initial thing is just coming up with a bunch of ideas, putting them on cards, and maybe organizing the cards on some giant whiteboard or idea board. And the reason we talk about this is because these cards kind of became a little bit of lore in themselves and used to categorize different teams that came out of this brainstorming session, specifically the blue teams and the pink team. Why were they called this? Well, uh, the color of the card represented kind of the, the scope of the idea that was put on it. There were red cards, which I guess aren't as important. There probably weren't too many that were the really long-term projects. Uh, and one of the the main examples there was creating an object-oriented programming language. That'll come up again. Don't worry about it. We got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the two main categories were blue and pink. Pink was for big architecture overhauls to the operating system. These are things like a protected memory space, kind of reduce your, uh, your, your bomb dialogues, um, true multitasking, as in preemptive multitasking. And this was something I had to refresh myself on because you may say, hey, you just said System 6. System 6 has multi-finder. That means multitasking. Well, that was actually cooperative multitasking, which uh, like in a very high level that I may actually not be getting entirely correct, the application still had to be aware of each other and and kind of manage uh, memory and resources in that way. And the multitasking was more of like you could have the windows of multiple applications being drawn on the same single screen, but you weren't actually doing true multitasking as an One example of this is as simple as if you wanted to empty the trash in System 6 or System 7, you couldn't still go back to another app that wasn't the Finder. So you you weren't fully multitasking. This was one of the big pink ideas. I remember the distinction between cooperative and preemptive multitasking. The word preemptive meant that when you initiated some new action that 
that actually whatever it was sort of first in first out so that whatever the user did most recently got the most focus and i remember in the system 7 era where you might have where you might actually perform a number of actions basically on buttons and windows and controls that weren't even there yet and then you would watch them draw in and you know you could you could basically like open a a save dialog box click where the save button would be and then you know type something and like and it would all then just sort of spool out in front of you whereas in preemptive multitasking once the control is on the screen if you interact with it unless the system is completely locked up you're going to see the mouse down action and that kind of thing and then in this brainstorming session there were the blue cards the blue card stood for incremental additions, things that could be tackled more quickly, maybe even at a surface level. And uh, one of the the biggest things to come out of this was colorizing the interface, the interface of the Macintosh OS. And uh, as teams began to form who were tackling certain ideas from either camp, uh, we got to things like the blue meanies, which I don't know if we addressed in our Easter eggs episode, but you can find blue meanies references in System 7 and other uh, Apple software, operating system software from this era where people were staking their claim on what they were working on. <laughs> I just said System 7. It was released in May 1991, and it was essentially the culmination of the Blue Tasks. It was the Blue Team, the Blue Meanies release. This meant that there was a pink release being worked on in the background. John Scully, who was CEO at that time, had a build of the pink OS and uh, he showed it to IBM and this kicked off uh, a whole phase that I had forgotten in Apple's history, the Taligent company. The pink release of Macintosh OS was going to be multi-platform. It would run on the Motorola 68K processors that were powering the Macs. It would also run on IBM processors. It would run on, uh, I think, another family of processors, too. There was an alliance between Apple, IBM, and Motorola, which uh, has the acronym AIM, which may mean something else to people who are using computers in the 90s. Um, and it, and this Taligent company kind of took over the development of the pink operating system and began to turn it into a company with the goal of creating this OS that you could put on different kinds of hardware and you know, had it succeeded, maybe that would have been Windows, which could work on any kind of PC OEM manufacturer. But it was even more than that, because Windows was still a single architecture kind of operating system. So this was looking even more broadly at saying, how can we take our core operating system technology and let it run on a whole bunch of different architectures, totally different hardware designs. And this also was something that, you know, m- maybe this was the first time that it was seriously considered, apart from things like open-sourced Unix operating systems. But those were, of course, command-line operating systems and not GUI operating systems. But the same kind of idea of what if we could take our core pieces of the operating system and make them available to more people is going to come up again as well with Next. Of course. However, as we all know, with the benefit of hindsight, 
Taligent did not take over the computing industry and become the dominant operating system, no matter which hardware you brought to the table. And I think part of it is due to the fact that it was two separate teams within Apple, and one of them was contributing to this outside effort. Um, we mentioned these blue meanies, Easter eggs, which you know are kind of fun as Easter eggs on the surface. But part of it was also like, hey, we're the blue meanies. Uh, we think what we're doing is important. And there's a completely separate team that thinks what they're doing is more important. You can even go back to when the Macintosh, as a project within Apple, was very much an isolated project within Apple, flying the pirate flag. And so there was internal dissent within Apple. And of course, a great many other factors. But all of this is to say that by the end of 1995, Apple was out of contributing to Taligent. And Taligent, basically as we know it, uh, ceased to exist shortly thereafter. And I can just imagine the politics, but also confusion that would have gone on with this kind of thing, because Taligent was a joint venture as it were, between Apple and IBM. And eventually it got bought up by IBM and whatever IP and people were there went into uh, went into the IBM corporate structure. But if you're working on technology within Apple, a notoriously secretive group, and then you've got this other group of people who you're, you're looking at them and going, wait, so are they... If we give them this information, is it going out this side door, like you know, to a potential, you know, a collaborator now, but a potential competitor? That must have been very strange. Uh, when we did our iPhone at ten episode, a lot of oral histories were coming out about this. I remember uh, an interview with Scott Forstall where he kind of reappeared after a long hiatus. Reappeared wearing the same shirt. <laughs> yeah. And he and he had to tell stories about similarly when the iPhone was under development uh, for good reason. You had to have like a you know a separate clearance level just to get into uh, the the secret labs where these projects were being worked on. So yeah, it creates a lot of tension because that's the opposite. It's like oh if if you're allowed in here, you have extra clearance. Whereas anything that would have gone into Taligent, it's like anything that goes through here is basic. You would basically have to clear it as public. So. The pink project, the underlying architecture changes that would make the Macintosh operating system or, you know, a cross-platform operating system more robust, more future-proof. Those plans are more or less out the window. What does Apple do after Taligent falls apart? They announce their next big overhaul to the Macintosh OS, codenamed Copeland. This was announced at WWDC of 1995. And it's going to have some of the same big pink ideas. Uh, first, again, this is 1995. The PowerPC transition is certainly underway, if not completed. Um, and Copeland is going to be PowerPC native, kind of a, a, a given, a necessity. But it's also going to have um, this protected kernel layer for 68K apps, the 68K operating system space, codenamed the Blue Box, which I love because uh, the System 7 release that was 68K was the blue release. So we're going to kind of cordon off a section of Copeland and we're going to call it the Blue Box for all the blue stuff. Part of it being a protected space is uh, if something in the Blue Box crashed, if an application crashed, 
it's not going to bring down your whole system. It's just going to bring down the blue box, which you can restart. And uh, like so many things that we're going to talk about in this episode, that's also a concept that will come up much later. Yeah, that's the funny thing about that, too, is that 90% of your things would be operating in the blue box at the beginning of this plan, right? Because every third-party app would still be running on the earlier System 7 APIs, and they would all be sharing RAM with each other, and then you would have what, I mean... We're going to talk a lot about bundled system apps when we talk about Next Step, when we talk about OS X, but what were bundled system apps with System 7? Not very much. There was some stuff in the you know Apple Extras folder. You've got simple text, and uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, font DA mover. So again, uh, Copeland, the Copeland project is announced at WWDC 1995. We'll fast forward one year. WWDC 1996. It's still the main focus of the keynote. Let me preface that by saying in our outline, it says it was the main focus of Gil Emilio's keynote at WWDC 1996. And I am just, I'm just having a hard time picturing Gil Emilio giving a WWDC keynote. So that, that's, that sets the stage for what is to come. Of course, it's a keynote. Um, the keynote is, is a big event. And if there's something great that the developers want to see, there will be a hands-on area. And with software, I'm sure you can tinker with the software running on some kind of production machine. Here is uh, an excerpt from a story that I got on Wikipedia. I don't know what the original source is, but I'm going to read it in its entirety. There was a hands-on demo of the current state of OS 8. There were tantalizing glimpses of the goodies to come, but the overall experience was awful. It does not yet support text editing. So Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, continue. <laughs> so, you couldn't actually do anything except open and view documents. Any dialogue field that needed something typed into it was blank and dead. <laughs> also, it was incredibly fragile and crashed repeatedly, often corrupting system files on the disk in the process. The demo staff reformatted and rebuilt the hard disks at regular intervals. It was incredible that they even let us see the beast. That is... Amazing. That is on beyond the original iPhone demo where some of the apps were just screenshots. Because there they at least made an effort to sand down the sharp corners. Here it's just like, here's a drawer knives. Um, and there's a keyboard attached, but it doesn't do anything. Again, this is Apple's second big public attempt to to build and preview and show the future of the Macintosh operating system. We're a year in after its announcement, and you can't even type. <laughs> a, a let us admit, somewhat basic thing that you need to do on a computer operating system. Yeah. And I think from the outside perspective, because WWDC was not the public event that it is now, 20 plus years ago, any of these reports, like the one that you just read, got filtered through a much slower news cycle tech press to us who were following Apple at the time. And these kind of things, of course, did get make their way into Macworld and MacUser and the other magazines of the era. And as I recall at this point, the overwhelming sentiment was, we're not sure if Apple is ever going to release macOS 8. 
We are at macOS 7.5, 7.6 around this time, and you might as well consider that that's the final version for now. So that's that's the beginning of summer for WWDC in 1996. A couple of months later, in August of the same year, we see something. There's a glimmer of hope. Apple releases Developer Preview Zero of Copeland to a, a, a limited amount of developers. Guess what also happens in that same month? The Copeland project is canceled. I guess they chose zero for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now we're down to two very public projects that uh, have nothing. Well, they don't necessarily have nothing to show for it. Um, but the projects as they were previewed and announced are not going to ship. We do know, of course, in hindsight, that Apple did continue to uh, develop and release major releases of the classic macOS. Like you just said, uh, macOS 8 did come out and it had pieces of the ideas, the, the pink ideas from way back when. Um, we talked about uh, some of the multitasking woes where it's still not preemptive multitasking, but we do get uh, uh, hints of what preemptive multitasking might look like. For example, I know in, in macOS 8, uh, you were able to copy a file, say, from your internal hard drive to a floppy disk and be able to do something else while that's going on. Uh, but you would still, if if one application had a really hard crash, the whole system was shot and you had to reboot. Of course, other things that were teased um, as part of Copeland made their way to macOS 8, 8.5, and 8.6. Uh, most notably, perhaps the Platinum appearance theme. We got the overhaul that put uh, the emphasis on the charcoal system font instead of Chicago and more gray uh, window chrome. Um, one of the great kind of uh, third-party or Mac community stories that came out of this that I know we've covered on here was the Aaron shareware extension. Aaron, of course, being the first name of Copeland that let you uh, just drop this extension in your system seven extensions folder. And it would make your system seven look like Mac OS eight. And that of course was the beginning of the, of Kaleidoscope and the entire scheme community that came up around that and hundreds and hundreds of different ways of making your classic Mac system look. Because once you've done it once, why not parameterize it and let people go go crazy? That was possible when the entire system memory was yours to play with. So that's kind of the end of this era. We're essentially the the classic Mac OS as it uh drew to the end of its of its own run was the culmination of a lot of these blue ideas, maybe all of the initial run of blue ideas and some attempts at incorporating the bigger pink ideas. But ultimately, Apple just didn't have what it took to do all of the big pink ideas in-house. So another option had to appear. Yeah, so at the time that Copeland was well and truly canceled people started to realize that if Apple was going to have a truly next-generation operating system, they had already spent basically two years on it, uh, one year at, at, well, probably even longer than that, to be honest, internally. They had put these years-long efforts into it, and they were back to zero, and that they couldn't afford to try again with their same team and the same ambitions 
to go from zero to a full-fledged new operating system, they were going to need to call in some external help. And there were effectively two options that were being floated. One of them was the modern PowerPC operating system that was created by B. BOS, which was running on the B-Box and other PowerPC hardware at the time, which was doing really remarkable things in terms of multitasking and uh, file system management and data integrity and those sorts of things, and had the potential to be uh, to be the next version of the Mac. Or, at the same time, people were looking at Next computing and their next step operating system. And the history of Next will cover very briefly, but it's worth remembering that at this point, it really is just a uh, parallel track of Apple's development. And, you know, you can, you can really just look at it as the Steve Jobs in exile period. Because in 1985, just a year after the release of the Macintosh, he was ousted from Apple. And he was not done making awesome computing devices, so he was not just going to stop there based on his successes and failures at Apple. He went out and founded another company, which very creatively was named Next Computer. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot about Next that we're not going to get into Next as a company. Um, and you can certainly find out some of the stuff for yourself when you go to Wikipedia about how were their offices laid out or were they the first modern open plan office? Debatable. Um, but they essentially worked for three years in uh, secrecy with not a lot to publicly show until they unveiled their first hardware product in 1988, the next computer. And this is the the magnesium cube that would later be called the uh, the next cube. Which was the black cube. And uh, they also released a, a more traditional like pizza box computer called the Next Station in 1990. Um, but for our purposes of what we're talking about in this episode, there had to be an operating system running on this Next Cube when it was released in 1988. And of course, Steve Jobs was a huge believer in the GUI operating system that he fell in love with at Xerox Park and brought so many of those concepts and ideas to the Lisa and the Macintosh. And Next Step was, of course, also a GUI operating system, although with Unix underpinnings. And that was what they claimed was you know, really the heart of its power. It was a simple-to-use operating system with network computing as being one of its core principles. And so the first versions were with that first hardware in 88 and 89, and the next step operating system got periodically updated over the years with a final release, uh, in, which was version 3.3, about uh, seven years later, around 1995-1996, around the time that Apple is having so much trouble creating a new operating system, Next is adding really interesting features to its operating system, including things like being interoperable with other computing platforms. Before Ed does a big deep dive into Next Step, uh, obviously, how did Apple and Next get together? Apple acquired Next. 
The acquisition was announced at the end of 1996, December 20th, and it was for $429 million in cash to the initial next corporate investors. And this was a detail I did not know until looking up uh, stuff for this episode. Separately, 1.5 million shares of Apple stock directly to Steve Jobs, who is deliberately not given cash for for his part in the deal. So, yes. So Steve Jobs became very rich, obviously, on the in part on the initial successes of Apple in the 70s and 80s, and then even more so on the iMac and iPod era of Apple in the 2000s. But after, as part of and after his return to Apple with the next acquisition, he very much did not accept cash from Apple. So he was not given any cash in the acquisition. And I think part of that was because he was one of the people in a unique position of being, you know, of having previous ties to Apple that would almost look like, you know, a conflict of interest. By giving him Apple shares, that says, okay, well, you're committed to the success of this venture. Right. So this was this was in February of ninety-seven that the deal went through. Remember that in I think June of that year was the wired prey cover. Apple was considered to still be in its death throes even after the next acquisition. So the notion here is that if if this infusion of next technology and next people because many of them became prominent people within Apple, some of whom are still there today. Um, If that became a success, then Steve Jobs would have great personal success, and he did. But if it was a last-ditch attempt that went nowhere, it would be essentially worthless to him, as opposed to the other investors in Next who could be more reasonably seen as, you know, cashing in on their investment and getting out. It marked him as someone who was transitional and committed more to Apple than to the past successes of Next. And he would somewhat famously continue to not accept cash from Apple when he was the ICO and later permanent CEO with uh, his famous $1 yearly salary, which also led to some fun stories, I think, that surfaced around the time of the iPhone 10-year anniversary, like when uh, he would take a, a fellow executive or a coworker to lunch at the Apple cafe. Um, he would say like, put it all on my tab. They, they, what, what are they going to do? I only make a dollar a year. I don't know where this goes. <laughs> right. Because they would do it as payroll deduction, but he had no payroll. Yeah. He was like, I don't know what's happening here, but just do it. <laughs> Someone in accounting was just driven mad by that. This isn't balancing. <laughs> Uh, well, he was good for it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so next was Steve's company. And I think one of the things that we'll link to and is the foundation for what I know really in depth about how the next step operating system worked, uh, actually seeing it in action, is this demo video that he did of Next Step 3. We'll link to it on YouTube. Be warned, it is a very poor quality video. So you'll get all of the narration and you'll be able to see some of the 
operating system in action, but very blurry action. This is like when I taught myself how to watch hockey games on poor quality streams and you don't even see the puck. Like you can't read the text in this demo. You just get a gist of what the operating system was like. To see the the sharp graphics, you should look at the screenshots in the Twitter thread from Steve TS that will link as well. Um, and then you can get the full picture of what was going on in Next Step. But it's a very cool demo that Steve does. Um, like a 30-minute sit-down demo. Seems like they did it more or less in one take, and he shows off a ton of what the operating system had to offer. Uh, from the system features to some of the apps that were bundled with it to their app development philosophy. And one of the things that struck me is this is a 1994, 95 video, and uh, he's calling them apps hmm. at the time, right? You know, we, we are still in the application program era on the Mac side over there, and these were apps. And I think that that's kind of fascinating from the linguistic side as that terminology came over to the Mac and then, of course, to iOS, where there is an app for that. So let's talk about some of the system features if you're not familiar. Maybe the most that you've ever seen of Next Step is if you follow the Kaleidoscope Schemes bot on Twitter. There were a bunch of Next Step and OpenStep clone schemes, as it were for some other operating systems, including BOS. And one of the things is that Next Step is not beautiful, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> um, but it is very recognizably a WIMP GUI operating system. You know, Windows icons, mouse, pointers. Um, but there are some things that are decidedly not Mac-like. For one, there is no menu bar. There is instead a menu palette, which I think starts in the top left and has all of the menus, like you'd have, you know, file, edit, view, etc., stacked on top of each other. And then they are hierarchical menus that can pop out from that. And I think you can even tear off palettes and keep them separate. As he's doing the demo, Jobs moves the little menu palette around the screen, which I didn't realize in some of the static Next Step screenshots, is that you can just take the menus and put them wherever you like um, instead of that fixed top position that we're so used to on the Mac. There are the windows. He points out that uh, they're doing something that the Mac cannot at the time, which is as he moves them around the screen, they do not redraw the uh, you don't get a outline and then paint, repaint in the contents of the window. It's live updating as he drags them around, which was I, I believe BOS was doing that as well. But it was something that the people who were working on Pink could not get that going on on the Mac. And then I love that the way that he describes it, and he says, and then there's a thing over here called the dock, which is a palette of icons down the right-hand side of his screen, which looks rather similar to the dock as it exists in macOS 10 today. Although it reminds me more of sort of earlier dock-type apps. Like, did you ever use Drag Thing on the classic Mac? Not extensively, but I was aware of it. So it was 
kind of more like that where it looked more like a grid of buttons and each one was an application or document. And it's a kind of funny that I know that, that, uh, even to this day, there's a little bit of a debate akin to tabs versus spaces of like, where do you put your Mac OS doc? Oh yes. And, and this, like this almost settles it. Steve jobs was putting the very first doc on the right side. Yeah. But top right, which is no longer possible and was always where I put it because I was influenced not from Next Step, but from classic Mac, well, Mac OS 8, where you had the application menu that could be torn off into an application palette. And then if you option clicked on the, or it had a zoom bar and you could go from a applications with names that looked a lot like the Next Step menu palette down to just the icons, and then you could snug that up into the top corner, and it would stay there nicely. But I've got mine on the right, but it is sadly centered. What is that called? Is it Fitz Law? That's like mentally easier to put frequently accessed things in corners because you just kind of like blindly fat finger your mouse or your trackpad, and eventually you'll you'll be corralled into a corner. Yeah, that's it. That's what it's called. And yeah, it's like ergonomically easiest, right? Because you can you can overshoot. You can safely overshoot and wind up where you want to be. And that is, of course, why the Apple menu was uh, was in a corner. Um, that's why we still have customizable hot corners on OS X to this day, because they're just so easy to hit with a pointing device. Same with the dock. You know, you might not get to the exact icon that you want, but you can always get to that screen edge and then just fine-tune up and down to the thing that you're trying to click on. Mm-hmm. For people who haven't used Next Step, um, one of the most important things is how do you interact with your files and folders? The the analog of the Mac Finder is called File Viewer, and it had some things that are now familiar in OS X. Uh, it showed a path view. It did this in a different way than we can see it now in the Finder, where you can turn on uh, the file path in the bottom bar with tiny icons. It did it with big, rich icons in the top of the toolbar. This was kind of an overall aesthetic in Next Step, is that at the top sections of Windows were often very visually rich and n- informationally not dense. Um, so you would have this sort of huge uh, section that was giving you some sort of navigational information or uh, a bunch of uh, actions that you could perform. And then there was a smaller, that was taking a decent chunk of the window, and then that reduced the amount of size that you had for content. Um, I found that to be a sort of universal uh, aesthetic throughout many of the first-party apps on, on Next Step. There was also a place that they called the shelf. Many people want there to be shelves on on the Mac, uh, and there are plenty of utilities for this. They want there to be a drag-and-drop shelf on iOS, and that doesn't quite exist yet uh, in the way that many people would like, even with some third-party utilities. But what was called the shelf in Next Step was really like the customizable toolbars that we have on the Mac now, where... Um, like maybe in the Finder, you can, uh, well, I guess a lot of this has been moved to the sidebar in the Finder now, but in early versions of OS X, you could put, um, you could put files and folders in the toolbar. Or if you think about, um, some apps that you might use, like in, like 
in OmniFocus on the Mac, you can take your most used perspectives or views and put those in the toolbar and they appear as icons. It's the same kind of idea. And the most noticeable thing that is in the OS X Finder that was a huge shock when it showed up in early versions of OS X, but was a core piece of navigation in Next Step was the column view, um, which I know it took me years to get used to and appreciate as a longtime Mac user. I did not want this like, what? what is going on here? Why am I seeing multiple folders in a single window? That is not how things are supposed to work. Every folder is supposed to be in its own window. But as it turns out, it is a fairly efficient way to navigate a folder structure. And honestly, I didn't appreciate the column view in OS X. I never used it until I was working in an office where a lot of things that I had to deal with, a lot of files and folders I had to deal with, were stored on network drives. And if you navigate them in the traditional list or icon view, if you have to go back and things have to reload, it can be extremely slow and cumbersome. But if you're in the column view, it keeps all of those like active at the same time. And so... You can very quickly get to where you're going, even if the network is slowing you down. And so I feel like this was part of Next's network-first mentality was what led to the the column view. This paradigm really cemented the idea of the finder, or in this case, the file viewer, as an application in its own right, rather than being the kind of default environment because um, I remember that when after I'd been using OS 10 slash Mac OS for a long time and then started to go back into using the classic Mac OS, uh, mostly for this podcast, uh, having a different finder window spawn for every different folder or volume threw me off w- in a way that was way more visceral than the opposite when, oh, now there's only one window and I just moved to a different view within the window. Um which I think means that like that that is a more natural way of navigating the the file tree within one or multiple volumes. Right. And there are sort of three philosophies there. The first one is every folder a separate window. The second is the next way of the whole hierarchy in one window. And then the third way is the more Windowsy way, which you can also do in OS X now, which is the browser-style model, where you have a single window that shows you a single folder and its contents update as you navigate, quote, forward or backwards, even though those aren't really directions in the file and folder metaphor, which uses up and down. And yeah, now all three of those are available in OS X. And I'll admit, I'm still a I'm still an old school one in a window uh, kind of person, and I will aggressively turn off the sidebar in Finder windows to make it ha- not have the browsing kind of behavior. Hmm. I'm. I think I'm more of the the next style. I've grown to become more of the next style. Well, the nice thing about OS 10 is you can have it all. Pick what works for you. Yep. Um, I'll run through a couple other uh, kind of system level features here that will have echoes in OS X. So uh, 
you were saying, Brian, that the Finder was like the default on the classic Mac, and everyone knows that when you, you know, like if you had a brand new Mac running System 7.0, and you start it up, and it's finished starting up, you're going to see the menu bar, the desktop, hard drive icon, and the trash. That's it. And so the desktop and your hard drive were your top levels. Yes. And on Next Step, the computer was the top level. And this is now also the top level in Mac OS X if you open up a Finder window and just keep hitting Command Up to go up, 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 up. You'll eventually get to something that has an icon of your computer type and your computer name, and it'll show a bunch of attached drives, um, a place for network, and remote disk, if that's still a thing. It is. I'm on my MacBook Air right now, and that is one of the options. And when that came over, I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is so Windows-y. Because Windows also had the My Computer as like the default place from the start menu that showed drives. Lettered drives, yeah. Everyone was like, ugh, Apple's adopting this Windowsy notion. But it wasn't. It was really a next notion of, you know, like how how can you build computer operating systems and avoid using the word computer like it's going to like it's going to show up at some point and what's contained within that comp- you know on-screen computer metaphor is what's important and the kind of things that appeared there in next are what appear there in macOS today um including if you dig down into your uh folder structure a little bit more your home folder um, every user on Next, which was a networked multi-user system, had a home folder, had this beautiful picture of a ho- house with trees in front of it. That was the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Some more niche features that uh, power users today are still familiar with in the persistent menus palette that was always there, always looking at you. You could always see the services menu. And uh, jobs demos one of the services, which is look up in the dictionary, which, you know, it, it's one of those text input services where he shows, you know, it doesn't matter what application I'm in. If I select a word and I go to the services menu, I can look it up in Webster's dictionary that we ship with Next Step. The same as it's a different dictionary now, but Mac OS ships a dictionary and you can always look up any word in any application via that same architecture that's come over from Next Step. Services I I have put in my notes here, they're, they're in macOS dot 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 for now. This is going to be one of those things that's going to be really interesting to see where it goes because they it was like they got half deprecated and half promoted in Mojave because we expect that the automation frameworks that underpin things like services might change in the future with shortcuts and Siri integration and these kind of things. And we would think, okay, well, like, like uh, we said at the top of the show in follow-up dashboard, like just scrap it, right? Like who's going to need it. Um, But instead in Mojave, things that usually go in the services menu, which is tucked away under the, uh, under the application menu now in sort of a, middle no man's land where you might not even see it right um they got promoted into the finder into 
the UI in the new gallery view and things like that. And they're called quick actions where you can take these things and assign a button to them, which is more visible than some hidden away in a submenu service. And it's going to be very interesting to see what the future of these next services are and how they get handled. Things, though, like look up in the dictionary, like I don't think Apple's going to get rid of that. Um, you know, there's a lookup feature on iOS when you push and hold on a word. Uh, if you have a force touch trackpad on a Mac, by default, if you press and hold, it runs a, a lookup on that word. I just did it. I thought I had turned it off because I would uh, accidentally activate it, but I didn't. I must have just changed my force click sensitivity. <laughs> and like I have on my computer, I have some of the multilingual dictionaries enabled. So you can even like, you can even press and hold on a word in OS 10 today and get a translation of it. So all of this is coming from that services idea. And there are some other minor interface things that seemed foreign in early OS 10, but were definitely next step uh, holdovers, including system-wide pickers like the font picker, um, which still just like, I, I, it's been 15 years and I still don't like it. <laughs> Being that it is part of the system, it's, uh, we talked about text edit in one of our recent episodes about word processing and text editors. Uh, it's one of the reasons that you can make your own very bare bones, haha, text editor. Um, because like the, all of text formatting is like a system level thing. You don't have to worry about it. Right. Yeah. You just say, um, Coco text view here. And another one that it was a little bit fuzzy in the video, so I couldn't quite tell, but the color picker as well seemed to be more in the layout that is common in OS ten. That made me think of like, what was the color picker in the classic Mac OS? And I think it was, it was just the color wheel with fields for HSV. I don't even think like alpha transparency, um, as opposed to like the crayon box or uh, sliders for like CMYK or RGB. So like even the, not just the layout, but I think like the breadth of uh, possibilities for how you choose and, and set colors was probably a revelation here. Yeah. And I think in, I think in some ways you had to pretty much roll your own color picker for every app in, uh, in classic Mac OS. There wasn't, unlike the the text view that you just mentioned, it wasn't just like um, make make a color picker happen, which is exactly what you can do in macOS now. If you have an app and you need to change text color or object color, uh, background color, and you just put a you know one of those little well buttons and say attach this to the system color picking UI, boom, it all comes there, as they say, for free. So that's been like a lot of the system level stuff. But uh, like you were talking about before, you got a clean install of System 7. What apps come with it? Not many. <laughs> right. But there was a lot more. Well, it, it's hard to tell in this demo because he uses a lot of third party apps to show off their power as well. But there are definitely a few things in here that are part of the next system. Um, one that is heavily shown off in the demo is the next mail application. I hadn't really thought of this as a huge part of the OS X transition, but it you know it it occurred to me looking at this. Oh, that's right. On 
earlier versions you know on macOS 9 and previous if you wanted to send and receive email you had to install a third party application period maybe it was Eudora maybe it was Outlook Express maybe it was you know maybe you were doing your email through AOL whatever but there was no mail application and i think even in i want to say it was in like macOS 8.5 where um, the clean installs started to get less clean, and you would get these aliases on the desktop with like a hand pointing to a globe saying, go to the internet. And would just open your default browser. Right. And then there was one for a mail client as well, which would open some third-party app. But in Next Step, there was a first-party mail application, uh, as Jobs calls it, the mail system. Oh, <laughs> Um, which I guess is what it talks to. Um, and at this point, I think that there was, you know, the serious thought that you might have like fully intranet email in a company, um, as well as internet worldwide email. The next mail app is at the heart of the early versions of mail.app on OS 10. And it is a stunning piece of design. And I don't say that in, like I said, remember I said, I didn't think that Next Step was very beautiful. That doesn't mean that it wasn't visually rich, but let us say that Susan Kerr did not design the icons <laughs> for Next Mail. There are lots of pictures of things. And, you know, some of them are like, they're fine, whatever. They're more or less photorealistic large icons of things like envelopes and U.S. Postal Service mailboxes and a clipboard with a pencil on it. And then there's this horrific mouth in the middle of the toolbar. I saw someone describe it as like the Rocky Horror Picture Show mouth. Right. It's just a disembodied mouth. And everyone goes, what is that? And this was this was where Next was pushing the envelope with some features that weren't going to stand the test of time. This was called, I kid you not, lip service. <laughs> You know, sometimes we make fun of Apple for naming things. Maybe this is part of where that came from, and this is a particularly bad one, uh, which brought up a little pop-up window where you could record an audio attachment and send it with your email. Um, really terrifying stuff. Yeah. But it was all there and all of the technology that went with it and you know the, the things that you come to expect in a mail client, like a three-pane view with um, you know, folders and a message list and a message preview and then being able to compose in a separate window. All of that was there in the Next Step operating system. Brian, you also mentioned text edit. Well, in Next, it was just called edit. Um, as if, what else would you edit? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was an RTF, rich text editor. Uh, and if you, we'll, we'll put some screenshots links in the show notes. If you compare certain versions of it, there was kind of a time where it diverged and then it went back to the way that it was for macOS. But if you look at the the toolbar and the tab bar, that ugly tab bar that I don't particularly like in text edit, where it shows you every single tab, every half inch, mm -hmm. that was all there in edit on next step. And again, it was using those core system features of this is how we edit rich text. Right. Like everything, everything that underpins rich text in throughout the system is here in this built in app. A couple more utility and fun apps. Uh, one that 
came out of left field for people who are used to the Mac with early versions of Mac OS X was Grab. Like, what is this thing called Grab? Well, it's for screenshots. Well, yeah, that's what Command-Shift-3 is for. And, well, to this day, that's still what Command-Shift-3 is for. Uh, but there was a separate app for that on Next, and it had this fantastic icon that really goes much more with its name than how it evolved over time. So it's it's an icon with a hand, like you might expect in a uh, in a Mac application icon, and it's physically grabbing the top right corner of a Next style window. And then as this Next technology got rolled into the Mac, there's a version of it holding a platinum window, and then there's a version of it holding an aqua window. And now in the current versions of OS X, it is uh, some still some window widgets, but the grab the physical grab metaphor is gone, and uh, it has some uh, a pair of scissors on the icon, like it's cutting out a window. I don't know if we need to take a, a long aside here, but yeah, we've we've talked about these icons and like the the overriding aesthetic of the next step icon. I don't know. Uh, uh, interface guidelines, as it were, uh, you know, the original Mac, Susan care icons, they're beautiful, they're expressive, but yet they're still icons as in like, you know, representing a concept, not fully, uh, reproducing the concept. But I think here in next step is where you start to get kind of like the Scott Forstall skeuomorphic, like let's get as close to their real world representations as possible. So you mentioned the, uh, the hand holding the grab app as you would imagine, like the the generic application icon from day one of the Mac was uh, a piece of paper and a hand taking a writing instrument to it. Um, even as the Mac icons got more uh, visually rich with color and then uh, alpha channels. Up to being 512 pixel square works of art. <laughs> yeah. These, uh, these next step ones almost look like they are like uh, compressed photographs. They're, they're veering away from being iconography and just like icon sized photos. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that in classic Mac OS, you know, you would go to get info to change an icon mm-hmm. and that ideally you would have a perfect 32 by 32 icon on the clipboard to paste in and then everything would be beautiful. Yeah. But do you remember that you could take any image on the clipboard and paste it in there. Mm-hmm. That is what some of these look like. It looks like someone did a basic, you know, alpha channel outline, you know, to isolate the the thing that is to be represented in the icon. And then they said, paste into a 48 by 48 canvas, and there you go. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Scott Forstall in this and skeuomorphism. Of course, Forstall is one of the people who was an important part of the Next acquisition. He joined Next in 1992, and so had already been there for a few years by the time Next Step 3 was out. Uh, And of course, his design influence was massively important uh, throughout uh, Aqua and then um, also on iOS in the rich Corinthian leather phase. But yeah, back to our discussion of some of these built-in apps. I think there's one left on your list. Oh yeah, we 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 can't move on without talking about the most important app that uh, began with Next and is still on your Mac today. It's Chess.app. <laughs> uh, you might have forgotten that Chess.app was on your Mac today. 
And you said, well, well, maybe I got rid of it. Well, I'm sorry. You cannot get rid of it because if you try to drag chess.app to the trash, it will not just prompt you for a user, uh, admin username and password like the system now sometimes does with just ordinary apps. Um, because it's like, ah, oh, you shouldn't, you sure you want to be messing in there? Um, no, if you try to, if you try to delete chess, it will tell you that you may not because it is required by Mac OS. <laughs> There's, you know, some important system level architecture is buried deep in the resource package of chess.app. Yeah. I, I don't know what the story is, but it is, you know, um, up until they made a hilarious iOS game a couple weeks ago, it was like the last game that Apple had developed in a long time, but even they couldn't take credit for it because it was already there in, in next step. Um, to, you know, instead of, uh, I guess it was more highbrow, you know, Windows had solitaire, right? Um, we're going to give you a full on chess game that you can play against your computer. And I tried to launch chess, uh, just before we started recording. Um, I think this is important for the, uh, the, that was then, this is now kind of comparison. Everyone is really worried. People who've installed Mojave go, oh man, these Marzipan apps, they're so bad. I hope that this like rumored new music app isn't just Marzipan of iOS music. I hope it's a real Mac app. Yeah. The, these apps that have been ported from other systems are just so bad. And I launched chess today. Um, it beach balled. <laughs> <laughs> Then a disembodied sheet that wasn't attached to the window asked me to sign into Game Center. When I finally dismissed that and closed the window because I had moved a pawn forward and therefore started a game, it got the like, uh, you know, in the close, uh, in the close widget when it gets the little not saved indicator. Oh, yeah. So I closed it and it said something absolutely ridiculous to me. It said, do you want to keep this new document untitled? Because my chess game was now not a game, not a saved game, like we've talked about on, you know, we've talked about in computers for decades. It was a document. So I suppose I could have saved a chess document to my desktop, uh, but I decided to hit delete and move on with my life. But that's an example of, you know, that's a real Mac app through and through. It goes all the way back to the the, the very first version of the modern Mac operating system. I'm sure it's coded in Objective-C like a good like a good next step application should be. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the other thing that Jobs talks about in the demo is um, the, the app development process in next step. Um, he doesn't say the words Objective-C, but he touts how everything is object oriented Um Object-oriented has a very technical computer science meaning, which is really what it's come to mean in Objective-C and Swift and other modern programming languages. It also kind of had, it had this dual meaning, I think, in a more user-directed uh, meaning, where he shows things that are more like publish and subscribe in real time that was pos that was possible on Next Step. And it's like, oh, well, these are, you know, because of the object-oriented programming, these objects can be shared between applications. And probably that did, you know, save on um, RAM usage and things like that and make some of those applications possible. Um, but it is important that uh, Next Step was built on Objective-C uh, because 
before Coco, things were not being written in Objective-C on the Macintosh. There was Pascal and regular C and C++ and many other languages, but that was not something that people were doing. Uh, another key component of the app development process he shows off is Interface Builder, which is a WYSIWYG way for creating uh, application elements. And that was a separate standalone development app for the Mac for many years, and recently it's been rolled into Xcode. One of the cute uh, interface visual things that came from Interface Builder is that because it's a builder, it has a hammer icon, and that hammer is still on the Xcode icon to this day. And uh, another sort of low-level system thing is that the we're, we're now used to every new major feature that Apple adds to an operating system has an API that goes with it, and you can bet that that's going to be called something kit. Yeah. There's Siri kit, and there's music kit, and several other kits. These were also present early in Next Step. So in the demo he uses, he creates an app that uses database kit, which I think is, I don't know if that's still part of the current Mac OS, but it definitely shows that naming convention that has gone all the way through. So all of that comes from, again, this uh, Steve Jobs-led tour of Next Step version 3, which, again, we'll, we'll link to. Um, but yeah, so all of that technology, the operating system, uh, the, the development languages and, and environment are all now in-house at Apple. How did that become Mac OS X? Uh, well, so again, we've, we've had kind of like the Pink Project, which turned into Taligent. We've had the Copeland Project, which crashed and burned. Um, briefly after Copeland was clearly not going to pan out, there was another code named successor to the current Mac OS called Gershwin, because this is another thing I, I forgot until today. Uh, we're used right now to, uh, Apple's public facing code names being California landmarks. And before that it was uh, big exotic cats, <laughs> but before that, I guess it was, it was, a uh, music composers and, uh, composition terms in general. So we had Copeland. Then we moved to Gershwin, which did not uh, pan out very well. And then the the actual code name of the transition, bringing in Next and Next Step and Next Technologies into the next Macintosh operating system was Rhapsody. And this code name and the project in general for creating the, the successor to the Mac OS was announced at Macworld Expo, the, the January conference of 1997, and fully previewed at that year's WWDC, the Rhapsody Project. I'm looking at a list of code names that we can link in the uh, in the show notes, and this was actually towards the end of a long run of operating system related uh, composer and music names. So, System 7.5 had code name Mozart, and 7.6 was called Harmony. MacOS 8 was Tempo. 8.5 was Allegro, um, and <laughs> a project that I guess was never released because it's called Mac OS in 1999 was Sonata. We've been talking about Steve Trouton Smith's mega Twitter thread where he provides screenshots and insight into all of these different uh, Rhapsody era builds. Um, uh, one of the pull quotes that uh, we liked from that thread is that basically the Rhapsody codenamed project was essentially Next Step 
And another thing that came out of this Twitter thread is uh, he he said that that the basically the HIG, the Human Interface Guidelines, which are famous in uh, I'm sure many of our listeners' memories, uh, especially people who who like the show and like uh, classic Apple in the same way we do. The HIG is as a bible of sorts, um, but the Rhapsody centric user experience preliminary design document, essentially its own HIG. Uh, was leaked, Steve says, in 1997. He posted a link to it, so we're going to post a link to it as well in our show notes. And there's uh, plenty of interesting stuff to glean from there, not only uh, decisions that were made and uh, to be used for developers to build upon, but also things highlighted as potential issues that had yet to be solved um, when they were at this point in the development process. What was announced as Rhapsody um, was never shipped as a consumer operating system. It wasn't Mac OS X, whatever. It wasn't something that had a cat name or, or whatever. Uh, but it did make its way out of Apple as a shipping product in one form, and that was Mac OS X Server 1.0. Uh, so I think some of these screenshots uh, actually come from an install of that operating system. But again, that was for the, the server fork of the Mac OS not the consumer run it on your desktop machine fork. Mac OS 10 server 1.0. Yeah, it really looks like what if uh what if we ran the Aaron extension on next step? <laughs> not much more than that. Um and the actual integration of technologies happened a little bit later. And the integration of these technologies may not have been possible if next step had been developed as just a totally closed operating system. And, you know, hindsight is great, apart from the return of Steve Jobs. One of the other things that might have led Apple to be more interested in Next's technology than in the B OS technology is that there wasn't just Next Step. There was also a project that they were doing called OpenStep. And what OpenStep was it was basically taking all of the core APIs of the Next Step operating system and separating them out from the other portions of the operating system, things like the file viewer and the other applications. And these are things that will be familiar to you, especially if you are a developer uh, for Mac or iOS today, things like Foundation. Uh, which is like, that is still the primary system framework on Mac OS. Uh, something called Application Kit, oh. which has been very much in the news recently because that's App Kit, which is what Mac OS apps are created with using Interface Builder and those kinds of things, uh, as opposed to UI Kit, which was built specifically for iOS, but is coming to the Mac any day now. <laughs> And uh, the other portion of uh, OpenStep was Display PostScript, which was what was used to actually render things on screen. And that was the one piece that got replaced in the transition to Mac OS X. They replaced it with the Quartz engine, which relies on PDF as opposed to PostScript, but obviously those are somewhat related technologies. And those were the things that allowed for things like real-time movement of Windows on Next Step, and eventually macOS when the uh, CPUs caught up. 
and things like the fancy effects, like the genie effect in Mac OS 10.0. And uh, in our requisite mention of panic <laughs> on this program, which we haven't been doing in a while, uh, the PDF-based image assets allowed uh, applications to provide what was then called high DPI uh, you know, interface elements and is now what we know what we now know as retina, because I think uh cable sasser through panic was advocating for these these retina computer programs way before they were mainstream. And I think if you had like transmit three and could, you know, like reduce your monitor's resolution to something very small but still occupying the same space, uh, they would still look fantastic. <laughs> Uh, one other thing that is a development legacy from OpenStep is that the different APIs and the different functions and classes that are available in those APIs were first prefixed with the letters NS in OpenStep. So, you know, if you listen to uh, like the WWDC State of the Union, you will hear the letters NS over and over. Um, you know, basically everything that Shortcuts does is uh, built on NS user activity. Well, what does NS stand for? Well, it stands for next step, um, but you're carrying it around in iOS in your pocket. Uh, before this, it was NX, I guess just for next. <laughs> And they decided not to go OS. Perhaps they thought that that was too ambiguous because it matched operating system. Um, so that is where the NS prefixes came from. Apple is working on phasing those out, but man, it's going to take a long time. Because OpenStep was a little bit platform agnostic, didn't care as much about the processor that it was running on, didn't care as much about the uh, the file system that it was running on, which is important because all of those, all of those macOS computers running HFS plus, ding, you still want the operating system to be able to run when when you update. Um, it was what formed the foundation of the later builds, uh, Developer Preview two and Developer Preview three. So Developer Preview two is uh, the last of. Well, really, it was the last macOS version to have the Platinum appearance. Um, and it has a whole bunch of interesting apps in it so that you can tell come from different places. So there are things like mailviewer.app and preview.app. Uh, preview, of, of course, was also one of the, um, one of the next applications built into the system. But then it has things like macOSpreferences.app. What is that? <laughs> uh, Finder.app, which is acting in place of the next file viewer. Uh, and Apple Menu Options.app, when it was still contemplated that there would be a classic style Apple menu in macOS 10. <laughs> they really screwed that up in Developer Preview 3, which um, brought the first look at the Aqua appearance. Uh, and as well brought the infamous centered Apple icon in the menu bar, which just got in the way of everything. <laughs> Purely decorative, no longer a menu. Um, menus would flow around it if you were running a native macOS application, but if you were running a classic application in emulation, it would just go right underneath the, uh, the text and make it very difficult to read. So at this point, they're starting to get... Uh, the different boxes in order. 
Um, so like we had the blue box before, there's now also the yellow box, which is holding all of the native applications. Um, and then what are we going to do with all these classic Mac applications? Well, we're going to run them in emulation. Uh, and DP3 was when this really became sort of its, its ugliest, but it persisted this way into early versions of Mac OS X, where if you had an older application, you would boot an instance of Mac OS 9, which you would actually see happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't even bother to rewrite the classic layer as something different so that, like, you know, they could have at least made the startup look different. It just showed a full desktop with extensions marching, the whole thing. And then when your app had launched, it was Platinum and everything else was Aqua. And it was just two worlds living under one operating system. Some of the first-party apps at this point were also not totally finished. Um, one of the great things that uh, we'll link to is this this horrendous preferences window from the mail, perhaps mail viewer application in DP3. Um, it has not been properly aquified at all. Um, there's like a checkbox in a, in a table view that is all wrong. You can't see it. There are buttons with, I'm not sure what font, uh, down the side of this window. Um, whereas everything else is in lucid grand. Like <laughs> it is a mess. Oh, and, um, it's got the help menu flowing around the apple. <laughs> Make room. Um, just like the trifecta here of, this interface is not done. But as we know, with the benefit of hindsight um, and 15 plus years of using the modern Mac OS, uh, Apple got its stuff together. They released the public beta of Mac OS X and continued to iterate on it against a bunch of major releases. Um, famously at 10.4, we found out that uh, Mac OS X had been living its secret double life and was able to run on both the PowerPC processors, as well as Intel x86 chips. Um, And we continued along that steady march of innovation to the new uh, product lines at Apple. We've got the iPhone and the iPad, which run iOS, which are based on OS X. And then uh, we have the Apple TV, which runs tvOS now, which is based on iOS, which is based on OS X. Uh, The watch... The whatever HomePod's audio OS, whatever the little bridge OS in your touch bars, uh, you can see the direct lineage all the way back to Next Step, Open Step, and uh, its its original architecture that Apple had to bring in and get Steve because their their in house failures to create the true successor to the very initial classic Mac OS just weren't cutting it. Right. So that brings us up to now and what we're thinking about for the future of macOS and why everyone is so apprehensive. And in one respect, they have every right to be. Uh, the, the classic to macOS 10 transition was ugly in both literal and metaphorical ways. Um, all the behind the scenes things of how things actually got developed, but then also on the user interface end. Uh, you know, looking back at screenshots of mixed Aqua and Platinum because you're running literally two operating systems at the same time, you know, 
that is kind of what we're going to experience with iOS apps running on the Mac. I think the one big difference that we have here uh, in 2019 as opposed to in 2001 with the earliest versions of of OS 10 is that all of these apps that were coming from next roots uh, they were fully developed on a desktop computing platform and then there were all of these classic Mac apps that were fully developed on a desktop computing platform and they had to be unified under one operating system that ran them both seamlessly. Um, but it wasn't seamless because the interfaces were were totally different. Uh, and what eventually happened was that Apple designed the Carbon framework to make it easier to bring classic Mac applications over into OS X and give them that native-looking appearance. And so what happened was two different desktop computing heritages got brought together under a effectively brand new operating system. And the thing that papered it over in the end was the Aqua appearance, right? By the time that the transition was complete, although not during it, <laughs> but by the time that it was complete, all of these applications, regardless of where they got their start, looked and behaved the same under something new, right? They didn't look like next step applications. They didn't look like platinum classic Mac applications. They were all aquified. And that meant that things coming from both places were forced to change. And I think that's what's different about the importation of iOS apps into the Mac now is that they are not apps that were developed on just a different desktop computing platform. They were built on a touch computing platform. And whatever, I think it's unlikely that three years down the road, there's going to be some never before seen totally wildly different appearance that unites them. Although that could be a pleasant surprise and could actually make the whole thing work as it did with Next and with macOS. I think what you just said maybe touches on some of the fear and the anxiety where if there isn't a, a new paradigm to unite both under something that they both have to change and adapt to, uh, is the fear that a lot of the conventions from the iOS touch-based interface will just simply override and replace the conventions we're used to as Mac users. Maybe. And like, that's obviously what happened with some of the next interface elements. Like, Doc is here to stay. Yeah. Uh, click on things in your doc to launch applications and to open folders. And that's where the trash is now. Um, get used to it. But the fact of the matter was that it was still a floating tool palette that had easily clickable icons that obeyed Fitz Law, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was a perfectly valid desktop computing paradigm. It was just new and different to Mac users. It was totally familiar to next step users. <laughs> right. The things that I worry about, yeah, it's low-hanging fruit, and I, I trust that they will be taken care of, but are things like date pickers from iOS that like they are just not built to work with a mouse. Plain and simple. The dock was built to work with a mouse, so it works with a mouse whether it's running in next step or Mac OS. You know, there, there's this discussion about what is Mac-like. And 
all of these things that we now consider Mac-like, they're secretly Next-like. So much of it is is not Mac-like. It's Next-like. And we've assimilated it and we've gotten used to it. And it's a good way to use a desktop computer. Um, so I'm not concerned about Mac-like. Just like throw that entire category and notion out. It, but it has to be keyboard and mouse-like or we're in trouble. <laughs> but it is outside of the realm of our show to uh, look forward. <laughs> we're used to looking backwards. So that's as good a place as any to uh, wrap it up for this episode. And maybe a couple episodes down the line, we'll be able to use the benefit of some hindsight to see uh, how similar these transitions uh, end up being. I think expect at least some serious follow-up next episode and couple beyond. Yep. Um <laughs> uh, we've we've queued it up for that. And you know, do expect a a couple bumpy years, but uh I think that there are good things in store. Yeah. So that was a whirlwind tour of Next and especially if you were someone who maybe came to the Mac through Next or had a lot of experience actually using Next computers back in the 90s. And there's something that we missed or something really cool that uh, still survives in the Mac today or even on iOS today that we didn't cover. Please get in touch with us. Let us know. You can do it the usual ways. You can find us on Twitter. The show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. If you've got a longer message, uh, feel free to get in touch with us through our website. There's a contact form there, and that's at simplebeep.com. We are also individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.